0: This is Lewis Lapham for Lapham's Quarterly, and this is The World in Time. Lead support for this podcast has been provided by Elizabeth Lisette Prince. Additional support was provided by James J. Jimmy Coleman, Jr. Speaking today with the eminent historian Jeffrey Wheatcroft about his new and very fine book, Churchill's Shadow. The Life and Afterlife of Winston Churchill. Your book, Jeffrey, is history written as a tragedy and not a melodrama, and to my mind it is a work of art. I've lived in Churchill's shadow for 85 years on both the sunny and shady side of his name and image. And you put the two sides together in a way I've never seen done before. If I may be permitted a Churchillian going over the top, you paint a portrait worthy of Holbein or Goya. Perhaps you can begin with the where and when you first heard Churchill speak and why 65 years later you came to the writing of this
1: book. Well, thank you, Lewis, for those uh, almost excessively kind words. Um, I'm very gratified. Uh, uh, Churchill's shadow is, I hope, an apt phrase, because, of course, like anyone of my generation, born just after the war, uh, we we, we grew up in that shadow. I can't remember when I first heard Churchill's um, voice, but it must have been uh, in my very early infancy, probably, on the radio and we grew up with him um his, his, his hearing his speeches from the war but hearing him still speak because when i was uh, six no five or six churchill rather eerily returned to office as prime minister again in 1951 and so I, by the time i was growing up and beginning to take any interest in politics he, well he retired in 1955 at the age of 80. So I was still a, a boy when he uh, his political career ended, but his his presence was inescapable. Of course, so was the presence of what we all called the war. It only meant one war, the one that ended in 1945, and and, and uh, J- Churchill loomed over it, over us, over that war, over and over the post-war years, and then, of course, his funeral in 19. 19- Sixty-five was a completely extraordinary event where well, I don't think anybody who witnessed it would have forgotten it. Um, a rather brilliant confection, oral and visual rhetoric. Nobody seemed able to escape from this shadow, not least in your country, because it, it, I think Kennedy, John Kennedy, was the first American president openly to invoke Churchill uh, as, as someone uh, by way of an indirect endorsement. It's notable that Kennedy was the first president for many years who hadn't actually worked with Churchill because uh, Roosevelt, Truman, and Eisenhower all had worked with him. And they, they perhaps didn't have quite so many illusions about him as younger people. And Subsequently, it became, uh, 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 they developed an, an, a quite extraordinary Churchill cult in America, which Christopher
0: fully aware of that. I mean, during my life as a journalist, practically every politician's office I've ever been in has a portrait of both Churchill and Teddy Roosevelt on the
1: wall. Well, it would depend on which country you're in. I mean, uh, Nigel Farage, for example. I mean, I have a, a bit of a connoisseur of people who have portraits of Churchill. More recently, uh, well, when, when there's a photograph in my book, actually, of President Reagan in the White House in
0: yeah, I 19, remember
1: that yeah 19, in 1987 in the Situation Room at the White House, and behind him is you can just make out on the wall uh, one of the famous 1940 posters, and if it's looked at close up, it shows a flight of aircraft overhead, Winston Churchill beneath, looking indomitable. With the words "Let us go forward together," then by by 2001, of course, Bush the younger liked nothing more than to be photographed in front of the bust of Churchill, which stood in the Oval Office while he was spouting Churchill's words.
0: Well, let's go back to the life. I mean, let's let's go back to the to the beginning, and you know, give us an idea of the vast sweep of. Churchill's life, born 1874,
1: and then pick it up from there. Well, it was, it was an enormous sweep, are the right words, because he was a Victorian. I mean, he was 25 by the time Queen Victoria died, and uh, he had just been elected to Parliament. Uh, he, uh, he'd, uh, he, he had fought for the Queen um, in the British Army on the northwest frontier of India and in Africa, twice over. He had traveled the world as a young man. And of course, he continu- although he left India for the last time in 1899 as a cavalry officer, he continued for the rest of his life to believe himself to be the ultimate expert on India, which was not much help, in fact, 30 or 40 years later. But then he entered politics. He had an astonishing career, really, because he became an MP in 1900. He became a minister in 1905 and remained a salaried minister for 25 years until 1929, with only a couple of short interruptions, although he could only manage this feat by changing parties not once but twice. He deserted the Tories for the Liberals and then Deserted back again 20 years later when the Liberals were in eclipse. And he then spent the 1930s in opposition, well, in a form of opposition, though longing to be back in office. And this has been ridiculously called his wilderness years, rather like, as it suggests, a comparison with St. John the Baptist, a voice calling in the wilderness which no one would listen to, which was the essence of the whole Churchillian mythos and in 1940 he became Prime Minister and the saviour of his country. That's according to the Churchill myth, and it's part of the myth I I, I don't deny. I, mean, I think he did play an absolutely decisive part in, in 1940. But, but the, 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 the problem, well, the problem was actually, uh, you asked me about myself and how I lived under his shadow. I've said that I remember vividly his funeral, and then... The increasingly striking and some ways strange afterlife of Churchill as this cult developed and as uh, his statue in Parliament Square was unveiled, but that was only the beginning because there are now statues of Churchill everywhere. There's one in London, there's one in Jerusalem, there's one in New Orleans, which my daughter photographed me next to. Uh, in 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 the shopping precinct in Kansas City, there's a replica of the of the statue uh, that stands on the village near Churchill's home at Chartwell, of him and his wife Clementine, which plays the words "I have nothing to offer but blood, toil, tears, and sweat" at the press of a button. And as 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 to as to leaders who've invoked him, those who done so include everyone from George W. Bush to Benjamin Netanyahu to Nigel Farage, the uh, leader of the anti-European Brexit party in this country, uh, all of whom have invoked him while not necessarily knowing very much about him because, of course, going back to his career, in in the 1900s, he was uh, an extremely vigorous, radical liberal, and he played an important part in creating... The, uh, the foundations of what we now think of as our entire system of social security and welfare in, in, in league with his colleague Lloyd George, he moved rather violently to the right after the Russian Revolution in particular and the rise of the Labour Party in England, which uh, he thought was a mortal threat, although by 1940, of course, he brought Clement Attlee into his Great coalition government.
0: During but you the war. say that all through his political career, he was disliked and distrusted. He never had followers. I mean, he he has this magnificent legend of of, of this great politician and magnanimous man. But off the you know away from the camera and from his own self glorifying prose, he's he's. He's not much liked. he's mistrusted, he's arrogant, he's meddlesome.
1: He's all of those things. I mean, he was uh, an incredibly difficult colleague when he was in government. I mean, from 1924 to 29, he was the Chancellor of the Exchequer, or Finance Minister, in Stanley Baldwin's government. It was incidentally an office for which Churchill was quite remarkably ill-equipped I mean, his management of his personal finances was hair-raisingly disastrous. He was perennially on the brink of insolvency until the age of 65, and although he earned enormous amounts of money, he always spent more than he earned. Anyway, he, he, uh, he was not a good Chancellor of the Exchequer, um, and he, it's hard to say exactly what his political achievements have been up to, up to 1939. In fact, um, Paul Addison, who has written one of the very best brief biographies of Churchill, I strongly commend. Uh, He says that had Churchill died in his 65th year in 1939, he would be remembered today as the most interesting failure of early 20th century British politics. And that's quite true. I mean, he was he had uh, Lloyd George uh, who as i just said had been his comrade in arms in the 1900s c- creating the welfare services but they became uh, frenemies i think one can say for many years thereafter and lloyd george writing in the 1930s said about churchill that his trouble was that he had many admirers but he had no followers and and it is, uh, it, to, to an unusual extent for any very notable politician that was true he was He'd managed to make himself unpopular with every party. Obviously, the liberals by, well, the Tories by deserting them back in 1904 and then returning 20 years later. One of the things that would have marked him as a failure up
0: up until 39 was his uh, very bad military strategic judgment. I mean, talk about Gallipoli.
1: Well, that's quite right. I mean, I, I came to the conclusion while writing the book that Churchill was not only a, a very bad strategist generally, but he simply didn't understand modern warfare. He thought that, it, beginning with a quite a decent impulse, which was to avoid terrible casualties, he thought the wars could be won by uh, sidestepping or by backstairs routes. And Gallipoli was the classic example. They were, they were a completely disastrous one. I mean, he, by the end of 1914, the contending armies, the French and British on one side, the Germans on the other, were just stuck on the Western Front in this ghastly, attritional trench warfare, which lasted for more than four years, with the line barely moving. And Churchill, was incidentally, he was right later to criticize General Haig for his futile offences on, on, on the Somme in 1916 and what Churchill called the ghastly crime of Passchendaele in 1917. Uh, but, but Churchill was in a very weak position because when he was given the opportunity to find a way of avoiding these bloody head-on confrontations, he he, made, he chose the Gallipoli landing, which is Uh, more absurd than its words can easily describe. I mean, to to understand the absurdity of Gallipoli, you just have to go there. It's a a very thin, narrow peninsula on the far extremity of what is still geographically Europe, um, running from Constantinople, as it then was, now Istanbul, westward, along this Sin peninsula until it comes to an end at Cape Hellas, and they they chose to land at the at the at the very end of the, the peninsula, and to try and fight their way. Uh, the, what the intention was to try and fight their way all the way along it. Well, I, it was I, you just go there. It is crazy to think they could do it. Incidentally, the operational plan for the landing in April 1915 was to take the, the mountain five miles inland on the first day. Eleven months later, they still hadn't reached it. Instead of which, they'd just been pummeled by the very good Turkish artillery, which commanded the heights. Yeah, it also entailed the the killing of a great many British and Australian troops. It certainly did. I mean, it's 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 a site myth. It it was a founding myth for two countries, for the Turks, because one of the, the, the the Turkish commander was the man known later to history as Kemal Atatürk, who created the modern national Turkish state, which succeeded the old Ottoman Empire. Uh, but, and and, and he, uh, he, he could reasonably claim Gallipoli as a Turkish victory. The Australians uh, still celebrate ANZAC Day, which stands for Australian and New Zealand Army Corps, every spring. And they did. There was a slight myth, proper talking of myths, propagated in this case by Keith Murdoch, um, whose son Rupert Murdoch is known to us all still. And he was a reporter who said that, quite rightly, the British campaign was foolish, and also that Australian boys were being needlessly sacrificed, with the implication that nobody cared about. The, the lives of Australian boys in the British high command. Well, they may not have done, but it was, they were no more carelessly treated than the British soldiers were. And, and the only answer, by the way, to any, anyone to this day, Pope latter-day Churchillians, who say that, that Gallipoli was a brilliant conception, which unfortunately went wrong, I mean, the answer was given by one historian who said that uh, the Gallipoli could only have been a success if the campaign had been fought somewhere else. And that was true of a num a number of Churchill's subsequent campaigns.
0: Right. I mean, name some of them. I mean, there was the whole attempt at the underbelly
1: of Europe, and the do- Dodecanese. Well, that was precisely it. He, he Andrew Roberts, who I should, wrote a biography of Churchill three years ago, and has written a very hostile review of my book, but then given his own. Um, adoration of Churchill. He would not like my book, I have to admit. But uh, he says that the Gallipoli campaign was merely ill-fated and and that it might have succeeded. But he also says that Churchill made mistakes and learned from them, as with Gallipoli, apparently. But to the contrary, the historian A.J.P. Taylor said that during the Second World War, uh, Churchill continually had Gallipoli in mind as an example, not a warning. And he repeated it in the Dodecanese campaign, which is not at all far from Gallipoli, the, the Greek islands in the, to the southeast of the Aegean, where there was an absolutely bizarre attempt to seize the islands in September 1943. Eisenhower quite rightly said he didn't want to have anything to do with it. And um, and, and, and it was utterly futile in every possible degree, and it was all Churchill's doing. But then the whole Mediterranean strategy in the Second World War was his doing, really. And he, he tricked and deceived the Americans and the Russians into this um, campaign, first of all, for American troops to land in North Africa in November 1942, and then, uh, which the Americans didn't want to do, to land in Italy. And when you look at it, or if you just travel through Italy on a map, I mean, it it seems quite extraordinary to think that uh, the best way to invade Europe is from the very bottom of Italy. And then you have to fight your way up a long, narrow peninsula with a a great rugged mountain range running through it and rivers coming off on every side. Um, It was really Churchill's determination to avoid as long as possible because of his memories of the Western Front in the previous war, any large confrontation with the Germans, meaning in northern France, which was in fact the only way that the Western Allies could make any serious contribution to the war. And I'm afraid that when you look at that, at that second war hard through the perspective of time, you, you have, well, we, have, we have to recognize we, what Churchill, I, rather misleadingly in my view, liked to call the English-speaking peoples. We, uh, we ought to recognize, we Americans and English, that we didn't actually play a very large part in defeating Hitler. I mean, that's to say for, the overwhelming amount of fighting was done by the Red Army who sustained colossal casualties compared with the British and the Americans. And and, and and indeed, the Germans sustained almost all their casualties fighting in the east rather than in the west. Yes, I mean, the two biggest battles of the
0: European war were Stalingrad and Kursk. And in both of those battles, more than a million soldiers on both sides died. and It's, it's a completely different order of magnitude than... Normandy.
1: Of course, it is. And Churchill said Normandy was the most important battle of the war, which was preposterous when it was the same year as as as, as some of the battles being fought on the Eastern Front. And, and Churchill, more than anyone else, distorted our view of that war. Um, uh, that is to say, he um, uh, he wrote his or rather he supervised the ghostwriting of his enormous six volumes of the book called The Second World War. And it's one of the most misleading books uh, I know, because beginning with its title, I mean, if he'd called it War Memoirs, that would have been different uh, if he'd admitted that he was writing simply a personal account of the war. But he, he gave, the, the title gave the impression that it was a general history of the war. And, and it, play, it gives very little attention, indeed, to the two great wars that were fought, uh, and, and in which, of course, the British played little or no part. That is to say, the great land war in Europe between Germany and Russia in the east, and the great sea war in the Pacific between Japan and the United States. I mean, that's an important point. I mean, I
0: think you quote Churchill's daughter as saying that the, the whole point about Churchill was his gifts as a storyteller and as a journalist. And so his history of the war is really the history of his is the making of his own legend. It, it's very self-promoting.
1: Very much so. I mean, in 1900, when he came back from covering the Boer War in South Africa as a reporter, um, he gave a series of lantern slide lectures, which were the the cross between the TED Talks and the television program of of his age. He gave them around in London and around England, and then he crossed the Atlantic and gave the same lecture right across the United States and Canada, and, and, and it was called The War As I Saw It, which is actually, yeah. the, that is really the title he should have given to his two very long books. The first one called The World Crisis about the Great War, and the other one called The Second World War, because both of them are really The War As I Saw It, rather than a, 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 an actual history of the war. But talk about his attitude
0: toward terror bombing. I mean his I mean the thing that strikes me as appalling about him is is his knowingly setting out to destroy every town in in, in Germany and kill every man, woman and child
1: well he had, the truth is that he, he was there was no subject on which he was more confused and conflicted than terror bombing or fire bombing he He said in his first parliamentary speech that the wars of peoples will be more terrible than the wars of kings, which proved all too true. Uh, He wrote about the Great War with genuine horror about the bombing of London, which by 1915 and 16, which by later standards was trivial, but it did understandably shock people at the time. And Americans really need to try and understand that they need to understand also why uh, there was such extreme reluctance to go to war in the 1930s, um, because you know it was generally believed that London and other British cities would be laid waste. And 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 when some Americans like Ted Cruz, Senator Ted Cruz, talk about the betrayal of Munich, I mean, uh, first of all, I don't believe Senator Cruz could write 150 words on the subject of the Munich Agreement. But, uh, you know, how many bombs ever fell on American cities? Uh, he, how many bombs have fallen on a city in Texas? Um, so Churchill w- was um, uh, he, uh, deeply apprehensive about bombing, and it was he, he, he gave the most blood-curdling warnings about what would happen. And, and his supposed prescience in the 1930s, his great warnings about war and the need for rearmament, were actually quite wrong-headed because he talked the entire time in terms of air power. And he thought that, as I just said, that England was in terrible danger of being destroyed by Germans. As it happened, the Germans didn't have anything like the capacity to inflict very severe damage on this country, my country. Um, And he thought the only answer was... Uh, what would later be called mutually assured destruction. We had to build bigger and better bombers than theirs and, and terrify them by the threat of destroying all their, all their cities. But this turned into a sort of self-fulfilling prophecy. Because by 1940, after Dunkirk and the rout of the armies, the Western armies in France and the miraculous rescue of the British forces and then the Battle of Britain, and then the Blitz. These are the founding myths of of, of, of of English history for the last 80 years um, when we stood alone in Churchill's, very mis- again, very misleading words. He thought then that only a bombing campaign, only by way of a bombing campaign, could we uh, defeat Germany. But by the end of 1941, it had become clear that... Bombing, British bombing was doing very little damage indeed to Germany. And uh, Churchill wrote an extremely sensible, sensible memorandum saying that the bomber command and the Royal Air Force should not make exaggerated claims. But at a decisive moment at the beginning of 1942, when he could have decided to reduce the bombing campaign uh, and to use the resources being devoted to Bomber Command instead to other military purposes. For example, uh, to the kind of aircraft we really needed, which was long-distance aircraft for the Battle of the Atlantic uh, in the great U-boat campaign, which did mortally threaten England. Uh, Instead of which, he agreed to accelerate the bombing and appointed uh, Arthur Harris as the head of Bomber Command. And uh, over the next three years, the bombing of Germany intensified and um, we, I suppose one has to say, discovered the technique of firebombing by which an entire city could be set ablaze. And when you read nowadays about uh, the horrors that have been inflicted on some city, maybe Sarajevo during the Balkans conflict or um, somewhere in Syria more recently with many hundreds of people killed, we should remember that in J- July 1943, in the in the great uh, catastrophe, as they, they called it in Hamburg, the city of Hamburg was set into one vast fireball, and 40,000 people were incinerated. And Churchill, by then, couldn't really stop this. It became a f- kind of Frankenstein's monster, the bombing campaign, and it continued. Through forty-three and forty-four, and into forty-five, and then Churchill, with the famous bombing of Dresden in February nineteen forty-five, Churchill had, began to see, as a politician, which way the wind of public opinion was blowing. He began, I think, to perceive that there would be a revulsion after the war, as there has been, against this wanton destruction of every German city and the killing of nearly half a million civilians. And he wrote a a, a memorandum trying to disown the bombing campaign after Dresden. Um, But, you know, he was really in no position whatever to do that. Well, given his frequent
0: mistakes and misjudgments and the dislike and distrust that he inspires in his fellow politicians, how do we get the mythos... Of the, the finest hour and the greatest man who ever lived. Well, that is.
1: You've asked me a question um, which I might have been, spent rather too many years trying to, to answer. I mean, one of the inspirations my book has been my my late and revered friend, Sir Michael Howard, who was a, a great historian who died two years ago, the day after his 97th birthday. Uh, He was Regis Professor of Modern History at Oxford. He was a professor at Yale. He wrote a great history of the Franco-Prussian War. He he more or less invented the modern study of military history. Um, And uh, moreover, uh, at the age of 21, he'd won the military cross commanding a platoon of the Coldstream Guards at Salerno. Uh, And he... uh, Said nearly 30 years ago, something which has been in my mind the whole time I was writing the book, which was, the problem for the historian is not, as so many Americans seem to think, why Churchill was uh, ignored for so long, but how it was that a man with so dubious a background and so disastrous a track record could have emerged in 1940 as the saviour of his country. Well, that—that's a question which I have at least tried to address. Whereas the Churchillians, the hagiographers and hero worshippers, don't address it at all. They just say that Churchill was a giant among pygmies, and it was the folly of his compatriots and everyone else for that matter. How do you answer the question? Well, I—it was—I mean, I sometimes think one of one of the better historical aphorisms of the age was um, stuff happens. <laughs> I, I mean, one doesn't have to admire Mr. Rumsfeld to see the, the truth of that. I mean, events suddenly turn about. The Times' whirligig will suddenly bring about the strangest conjunctions. So that uh, Michael Howard went on. Um, uh, the, the British establishment resisted Churchill, as long as they possibly could, until in May 1940, in the extreme situation in which the country found itself, they turned to Churchill because there was no one else. And that's, that's true, that is the case. And then, uh, he, uh, because of his uh, famous rhetoric, um, um, not least the great speeches he gave in 1940, he created this He he really created almost deliberately a a literary epic of the war as it was going on. You know, it it was like a a great Greek tragedy in which he was the hero and the British people were the chorus. And uh, this uh, literary interpretation of, uh, of Churchill and his life continues to this day. And it's had one very odd outcome, finally, which is that uh, uh, about 20 years ago, Umberto Eco said he had been amused by a survey in which a quarter of British schoolchildren thought that Winston Churchill was a fictional character. But in fact, in a way, that's what he has become. He has become something outside conventional history. And this is uh, demonstrated by the his his portrayal in popular culture. And it it, it dawned on me in recent years that if you go to a movie called Lincoln, it will be hero-worshipping and and, and respectful in the Spielberg manner, but it will stick quite close to historical fact. But if you go to a movie called Churchill, which, by the way, came and went a few years ago, not many people saw it, supposedly set in 1944 and Darkest Hour, which was much more successful, and won Oscars, um, they are complete travesties which bear no resemblance whatever to historical fact. And nobody minds, and this is very significant when you think of it, that Churchill, when Churchill is portrayed on screen, he is like a character from ancient mythology more than a 20th century politician we can take uh, of whom we can take a balanced view well you, you you come at the, at the end
0: to standing silent in the front of Churchill's tomb and and and, and what do you mean by that I mean you, you recognize clearly the, the, the man's weaknesses and shortcomings he was an imperialist he was uh, you know racially he was intolerant of the lesser dark fluttered
1: well, people he, was. he was by any standards a racist not the standards important to remember this not the standards of our age but he was a racist in the eyes of his contemporaries who were shocked by his attitude towards the indians um, his fellow politicians were Um, He had many very grave grave faults indeed. Um, He he was uh, an impenitent imperialist and colonialist who said that there had been nothing wrong with the uh, extirpation of the American Indians and the Australian Aborigines because they were merely a backward race being replaced by a stronger or higher grade race. Incidentally, the context in which he said that was interesting because he was explaining in 1937 his continued support for the Zionists in what was then British Palestine. And when he was asked whether he didn't think the Palestinians were getting a raw deal, he said that. He said that they were. it was just the natural advance of history. Um, not, not words that I think any Israeli leader today would want to quote, although Benjamin Netanyahu was uh, another man who... Had a portrait of Churchill in his office. Um, he, he, he's quite exceptionally difficult, to Churchill, to pin down because of his the vast magnitude of his life and his achievements, but also because of of the. I mean, every normal, every human being is a mixture of different impulses and uh, and instincts. But Churchill was took this to uh, uh, an advanced degree. I mean, he he was at one moment exceptionally brutal, and at the one, another moment, he was highly chivalrous. And the two things uh, were so conflicted within him that uh, it's very difficult to disentangle them sometimes. It just happens that at one moment, he was swept on a wave of history in 1940. And, and uh, he did, I, I am the first to say... Lead his country heroically at that in that critical year from 1940 to 1941, but really in many ways he has misled us ever since. Well, you enjoyed writing the book, and one of the
0: because you find uh, Churchill a fascinating character, and because you you have a great tale to tell, and you tell it well, and the the and I get a conclusion out of the book that Churchill's great talent
1: was for telling stories. That is absolutely right. I mean, he was uh, actually another, very quickly to go back to where, uh, to an earlier point. It's easy to forget that in 1945 he was among other things, the great survivor because uh, of the other war leaders, Mussolini had been shot by partisans Hitler had shot himself. And, of course, just before that, FDR had died. Um, and really, there was no one left. Stalin was never give, him, going to give his account of events. And Churchill was able completely to dominate uh, the, 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 the story. And that's why in David Reynolds' very brilliant book, I must say, called, uh, about Churchill's writing of his book, The Second World War. The book is called In Command of History, And that's exactly what Churchill was. And he's commanded history in many ways um, to this day. And and it is quite eerie that we seem to be going through a kind of groundhog day uh, of Churchill's life, you know. In 1897, he was fighting against what we then called the Patans, we now say the Pashtuns, on the Afghan frontier. And uh, there we were. More than 100 years later, back in Afghanistan all over again. Uh, In 1921, he practically invented Iraq. And um, 82 years later, uh, the the Americans, with some help from us, invaded Iraq again. Uh, It's as though Churchillism is played in some endless loop that will never end. But um, I think perhaps it is time that we did uh, look harder and wondered whether we couldn't maybe turn that particular tape recording off
0: well i you, you have done so in in a great and grand manner and and uh this is a very fine book because you have you have got you have done that and without showing disrespect to churchill's finer moments and uh so thank you, to Jeffrey Wheatcroft, for talking to us today about your new book, Churchill's Shadow, The Life and Afterlife of Winston
1: Churchill. Well, thank you, Lewis. It was a pleasure.
0: Lapham's Quarterly brings voices from the past up to the microphone of the present. Save more than 30% off the cover price and subscribe today for only $49. Visit laphamsquarterly.org slash podcast for more details.